you're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Ha! Got him! That should keep the first order off our backs. Nice work, Paul. Tim, are we set to make the jump? Yep. The end of the prime in accordance with the rendezvous are set. All right. Strap in and let's get this intel delivered to the resistance. Punch it! You're listening to Star Wars. The saga continues. Your hosts, Kyle Avery, Tim Jirasi, and Paul Herman, are scouring the holonet for news and bringing you all of the latest updates on the future of the Star Wars universe. And the future is bright indeed. So we invite you to join us on this exciting journey as the saga continues. Hey there, Star Wars fans, and welcome back to another episode of Star Wars The Saga Continues, your podcast for all the latest news, rumors, updates, and uh, lately specific episode reviews for The Mandalorian and The Bad Batch and Ahsoka and all these other awesome, exciting projects we've got going on in Star Wars right now. As always, I'm your host, Kyle, and I'm joined by my co-host, Tim. How's it going, Tim? What's up, Kyle? It's going good. It's been a great week so far. I mean, the new baseball season has kicked off, so it's awesome that baseball's back. We got... Another great week of Star Wars TV content with The Bad Batch and The Mandalorian, Episode 5, or Episode 5 of the season, but <laughs> not the Chapter 5, but um, it's one where I am anxious to talk to you about because it was an action-packed episode, but there's some big uh, twists and turns that happen in it, so and a lot to speculate on, and I'm really curious if we're going to be on the same page about one of those reveals that we got in this episode, so it should be a fun one. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to talking about this one. There's a lot that happened, a lot that was introduced. We got character cameos, we got plot twists, we got stuff to speculate on at the end. So um, let's get right into it. Um, obviously, Paul's not here this week. Uh, he's got you know some other stuff going on and some other shows that he's on and stuff. So uh, he should be back next week. Um, also, of course, we also had the season finale of The Bad Batch Season 2 this week, um, which was crazy and twisty in its own right and kind of deserves <laughs> its own episode to talk about so i think we're gonna wait till paul's back um and I, I mean i guess it depends on what happens with these next few mando episodes i mean if there happens to be one that's like not as exciting or something maybe we could just spend more of the episode talking about, about bad batch which is highly doubtful though it is highly doubtful especially where this one leaves off and and knowing that we're getting close to the end of the season so i mean we might have to wait till after the season of mando or maybe sneak in a bonus episode somewhere and, and kind of just dedicate an episode to talking about bad batch but um oh yeah and don't forget yeah. celebrations next week too so <laughs> <sighs> It's too much, man. Yeah, this is... Oh, that's a good point. Because then, um, I guess if we record next Thursday, after next week's Mando episode, that's going to be... I guess Celebration doesn't start on Thursday this year. It's like Friday through Monday. Um, yeah, so but... we'll be able to record that episode right before Celebration starts. But then, of course, the following week, we're going to have a Mando episode on top of all the Celebration announcements. Um Man, whose bright idea was that? They couldn't just hold it for the end of the season. And then, the, you know, you could have panels at Celebration where you're teasing stuff for season four or whatever. Man, it's that's going to be crazy. 
they didn't take in consideration Star Wars podcasters and no, I guess not. For them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you got to think about that at some point because of all the media coverage that there's going to be around all the trailers and stuff. So, um, yeah, I don't know. We haven't quite decided or even really discussed too much how we're going to cover all that. But uh, rest assured, we will talk about all of it at some point. Um, but yeah, so so bad batch celebration stuff. We'll we'll get to all that, but we're just gonna talk some Mando for now. Uh so yeah, let's just jump right into this episode. Chapter 21, the pirate. Um, and this is one where uh, you know, we had kind of seen this teased in the trailers and stuff that they're gonna be fighting pirates on Navarro, uh, have a big battle with the Mandalorians and stuff, and boy, did it deliver and uh deliver, I think, a whole lot more stuff than we were expecting from this episode. Um, so, you know, we start off with, uh, Grief Karga on Navarro. He's talking to his, his townspeople about, you know, where they're going to put the shipping and all this kind of stuff. And then suddenly people start screaming and you see Gorian Shard's pirate ship, uh, hovering in the skies above. And he gets on a threatening hollow call and is, you know, being all menacing and threatening and stuff with Grief Karga. And he's not happy about how Grief and Mando shot down his guys that were there. And so, uh grief was like hey he shot first and um gorian's like well now i will shoot first and he opens fire on the town and starts uh you know raining fire on the townspeople and grief gets everybody to evacuate but he gets it he manages to get an emergency message out to uh carson tiva um and then we see this cool you know transition to this cool new uh new republic base that we've never seen before with like x-wings and y-wings coming and going um, and we see, uh, Teva at a bar in there, you know, with some cool, weird alien bar music. Uh, if you look closely, you'll see Dave Filoni and, uh, Rick Famuyiwa and Deborah Chow, uh, you know, with their, uh, rebel pilot characters that they cameoed as they're all sitting there at the bar. And Carson takes this hollow call and receives the message from Grief Karga asking for help and telling them that they're under attack by pirates. And then out of nowhere, <laughs> out of the back of the shot comes a Lasat um, in a rebel pilot uniform. And I'm thinking, you know, oh, that's cool. We're seeing a Lasat in live action. And uh, I'm like, that can't be Zeb, can it? Like, he's this is a rebel pilot. Like, it's probably a different dude. And he sits down right next to Tiva and starts talking about, oh, man, that's too bad. I thought Navarro was going to make it. And it's Steve Bloom's voice <laughs> as Zeb. And I was just, we we're like five minutes into the episode. And I'm like, they're just dropping a Zeb cameo on us out of nowhere. So um man right off the bat this one you know i had you on the edge of your seat with the action and the pirates and stuff and then zeb popping up out of nowhere and he looked fantastic uh oh, yes he did <laughs> sounded great obviously i mean they got the same voice actor for him um but yeah i'm i mean the fact that they i you and i were texting about this after we watched the episode i'm pretty sure this is the first time that we've gotten a full cgi alien character in the mandalorian you know usually they're like prosthetics or um you know yeah people in prosthetics or puppets or whatever um and i'm trying to think i mean obviously we've gotten some cgi creatures and we might have had some cgi background aliens or something um but this is the first time, and even uh, Paul Sunhyung Lee, who plays um, Carson Teva, was talking about it on Twitter. And somebody asked, like, oh, you know, when they filmed this on set, did they have a guy that was like, you know, Zeb in a practical suit that they then kind of like enhanced with CGI? Or was it a guy in a mocap suit? And he said, you know, it was motion capture. So 
Um, I mean, aside from like the Luke doubles and the way that they do the CGI and the deep fake and stuff with him, I mean, this is really the first time that we've seen a fully realized CG character in any of these shows, uh, which just makes me think that they wouldn't do this just for a one-off cameo. So we're definitely getting more of Zeb um, probably in the Ahsoka series, uh, maybe in Rangers of the New Republic, if that ever happens. I mean, clearly it seems like they're kind of folding a lot of the stuff that was supposed to happen in that show into mm -hmm. uh, this season of Mando. And I think, you know, obviously we see a lot of that in this episode. I mean, heck, even the fact that uh, that Grief's first call for help isn't to Mando, it's to Carson Tiva, who then brings that message to Mando. I'm like, you know, wouldn't May uh, Grief just have Mando's contact information? I know he's off with the covert and everything, but I would think that that would be the first guy he would try to contact. So, um, and, you know, maybe that would have been the original plan if Rangers of the New Republic was its own thing. But that to me seemed like, oh, you know, we got to kind of go out of the way a little bit to bring these guys into the fold and kind of show some of the, the stuff that's going on back on Coruscant and with the New Republic and stuff. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it was cool to see all that. Um, hopefully we get to see, I mean, maybe we'll see some more of Zeb in this show if the New Republic plays a bigger part in things. Or again, if we end up getting some iteration of, Rangers of the New Republic, um, you know, maybe we'll see him in there. Um, and I think it stands to reason that, like, if we're getting, you know, Hera and Sabine and Ezra and everybody in the Ahsoka series, we got to get Zeb in there, too. Um, and yeah, it's funny because I had to be a full Rebels reunion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I hadn't even really considered that much. Um, you know, I kind of figured, like oh zeb is back doing his thing either on lyrason helping uh you know rebuild his people or maybe he's still doing his thing with the rebels in the new republic but um i had kind of originally expected the ahsoka series to just focus on ahsoka and sabine going to find ezra and then we got that leaked trailer from celebration where we saw Hera, and that was a big surprise and we know chopper is going to be in it and for some reason i still hadn't really considered like oh we're going to get live action zeb at some point too so for me, this was a huge surprise. But like I said, now that he's on the table, I'm expecting to see a lot more of him because he looked way too good. Like they put way too much budget mm -hmm. into that for him to just be a one-off cameo. Yeah, it was such an awesome surprise to see Zeb. But just the way this episode kicked off, as you mentioned, it just started off with a bang. I I really like it too, where it was an episode going into it where I didn't know what the title was going to be. And you know how at least on the first day, or at least the first few hours when an episode of is up. Um, it doesn't give you the title. It just says the next chapter mm -hmm. number. And so you have to wait till it actually starts. And when uh went through the flashbacks and the intro, or the I should say recap, and then the theme music, we got the intro, and then the episode title came up, the pyro. It's like, oh, this is this is it. This is where we're gonna get that <laughs> the big Mandalorian action that we saw in the trailers. So that just wet my appetite very nicely, but I really liked the intro to this episode between uh, the communication between Grief Karga and Garian Shard. I actually just sent the tweet out about this about an hour ago where Garian Shard looks, we all said before how we love the design, but in the hollow transmission visual, it looks even better. I There's something about that visual that just looks really cool seeing that character design in a giant hollow vid talking to Grief Karga. It's just, again, that little bit of fantasy character element that went into the design was on full display as a hollow transmission. So just the way uh, they were giving each other going back and forth and making their threats 
was just great. But visually, I just loved how he looked as a hollow transmission. It was just a really cool visual uh, look that I just ate up as it was playing out. Yeah, yeah, especially because like when we see him on on the bridge of his ship, like it's obviously an actor in costume with prosthetics and like the mouth moves as he talks and all that kind of stuff. But to me, it definitely looked like when he was on the transmission, it looked more like a puppet, just sort of the way his mouth Mm. was moving. Um, And so and yet he still looked really intimidating. There was like this, you know, almost like a charming kind of like cheesiness to it um it's just you know one of those things where it's like oh this is how they would have done it like back in the 80s exactly Um, yeah and so yeah it was like it it. it didn't look completely realistic but it looked realistic enough and still looked you know really convincing and he came off as like really threatening and menacing both in his uh appearance and you know the way he talked and everything so yeah that opening scene was great yeah it just makes me think even when his first appearance in the premiere episode how you were seeing people kind of joking around about it. It was like, can you imagine the Guardian Shard having a conversation with Luthen from Andor? Just like the complete opposite in tones and uh, visuals, obviously, and just the settings of the series. But that's what makes Star Wars so great, that we get mm-hmm. both of these type of characters and the scenarios and the settings. That's what makes it great that we can enjoy the more serious aspect and, again, more edging into that fantasy element that makes Star Wars so special. So yeah, I just loved how this opening sequence looked with Karian Shard talking to Grief in that hollow vid. But yeah, that moment with the New Republic and the, all those fighter pilots at that bar. I originally missed the first time seeing Dave Filoni, Rick Fimue, and Debo Chow's cameo characters <laughs> make an appearance again. Um, I had to see as a screenshot on Twitter like, oh, that were actually in it. I, I must have just been too uh, obsessed with thinking about seeing live action Zeb. <laughs> so yeah. That. Well, there's one shot, um, and it's before Zeb shows up, but the camera's kind of panning across the bar, um, like to where Carson Tava is, and it it goes past them, and you don't really see Dave and Rick because they're kind of kind of have their backs to the camera, mm. but you see Deborah Chow pretty clearly, um, and she's a little bit blurry because she, you know, she's kind of out of focus, but. I was, you know, I just happened to notice, I was like, wait, that looks like Deborah Chow. And then I was like, okay, that's definitely her. And so then I kind of was paying attention to who was around her. I was like, wait, are Dave and Rick in this too? And sure (laughs) enough, there's another shot where like Dave's, the brim of his cowboy hat is pretty prominent um, in in the side of the shot. So it's good to know he has the hat as Tapper. Yeah. (laughs) Is it it Tapper Wolf or Snapper Wolf? Uh, Trapper Wolf. Trapper Wolf. Neither of what I said. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's good to know he has the hat and that he's still around too. Because there was a part of me uh, wondering if something happened to him when Carson Tiva was with that other X-wing pilot in the Book of Boba Fett, where they stopped Mando in the N N one. It was like, oh, did he get a new par- partner? Did that something happen to Dave Filoni's character? <laughs> but no, he's still alive and kicking. Well, the reason I think part of the reason they had a different X-Wing pilot with him in that episode was um, that actor who plays the second pilot that's with him in the Book of Boba Fett episode is Max Lloyd Jones, who was the Luke stand in in the in the Mando season two episode. But then they got a different actor to stand in for Luke in the Book of Boba Fett. So it was like. I think that was their way of kind of like still inviting him into it, saying like, hey, sorry, we're, you know, we're doing some different stuff with Luke and we're getting a new actor, but we'll still have you on as an X-Wing pilot. Yeah. And actually, he was he was also in this episode. He's the voice of the guy that uh, Carson talks to at the very end. 
You just don't oh, okay. see him. But yeah, so he's <laughs> he's still sense. around too, and we'll probably see him again some more. Yeah, that's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, but... I saw that. And I saw that in the credits when I was pausing the credits to check and make sure that was actually Zeb. Um, <laughs> because the first time I watched the episode, I was like, I recognize Steve Bloom's voice, but still like just seeing him in live action and seeing him in like a blue rebel pilot suit that we've never seen him in before. I was like, I'm pretty sure that's Zeb, but I'm going to wait and double check the credits just to make sure before I absolutely lose my mind. <laughs> now, see, I didn't need to see that for confirmation. As soon as I heard Steve Bloom was like, oh, that's Zeb. How can it not be? But it was just so cool. This first, like you said, seeing a Lasat in live action, this scene, I'm walk up. Oh, cool. That's Lasat looks great in live action. How cool would it be to see Zeb? But then he starts talking and you hear it, Steve Bloom. I was like, oh, crap, it is Zeb. Oh, this is amazing. It was like another great cameo that we're getting in these live action Star Wars series where animation, great animation characters are making that jump. And so far, they're just being pulled off and represented live action so, so well. And even though this is obviously a very small role compared to what we've seen with Bo-Katan and Ahsoka in Mandalorian, but as you said... I think this is just the tip of the iceberg of what we're going to see of live action Zeb. I will be shocked if he's not in the Ahsoka series. Um, again, maybe not a major character in that, but it's shaping up to be a Rebels reunion where there'll at least be one episode where they're all together and kind of ho hopefully kind of doing a catch up uh, for the events that happened since the series, which would be great. And, and if, um, as we suspect the series to go where they try to find Ezra and they do, find him and let's just say things go well they rescue him they bring him back and to have that reunion between zeb and ezra especially as time has passed that's going to be something really great to see play out in live action so yeah so cool that he makes his first live action appearance here just a very small cameo but boy did it have a big effect of just getting you all excited and pumped for what's hopefully going to come to this see more of these characters that we love so much in Rebels and see their story continue on. And uh, these live action series are just really, really cool. So yeah, as you said, he looked great visually. Um, they pulled it off really well because kind of the closest we ever got to live action Lasat was in uh, Jedi Fallen Order with mm -hmm. Cal Kestis' master and how great those graphics are. And it's obviously they have more of a realistic art style and kind of give you an idea what it could be if they ever did a live action and they did, they pulled it off because it did look kind of similar to the way the Lasat looked. I forget his name, but Cal's master uh, there. Jaro to Paul. Okay. Kind of how he looked in in live action. They did uh, really kind of expand on that. It makes you think of the, poss the possibilities of that game made you think of what it could be. It Mandalorian delivered on that with in this chapter with Seb. So yeah, really cool. Just a fun way to kick off the episode and, uh, Again, just laying the seeds for what's to come, and I couldn't be more excited about that. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, they absolutely nailed it, because I feel like um, as much as I've loved all the other characters that they've brought in, I think I think Bogotan was pretty flawless, too. Um, oh, yeah. But with, with, like, Ahsoka and Cad Bane, um, I guess specifically with those two, you know, it, it's like there was a lot of controversy over, like, oh, it doesn't look as good as it did an animation and you know oh, the head tails aren't long enough or oh cad bane's face isn't shaped right or you know this or that and people having different issues with it um but i've seen no complaints about zeb so far everybody's like wow they 
did a, a bang up job of, you know, doing a, a great live action interpretation of him. And like you said, maybe they did kind of base it more off of Jaro to Paul having already like a more realistic um, kind of live action style Lasat to go off of. Um, Cause he looked really good in that game too. But uh, yeah. Cause it was, I mean, really it was like, you see him and you're just like, Oh, that looks like a Lasat and you know, it looks really good and it looks really cool. And then when you, when you hear the voice, you're like, Oh, that's Zeb um is really what kind of sells it um because he doesn't have you know like i said the same outfit or weapons or um all that kind of stuff from rebels so um but yeah that was really cool to see not at all what i expected to get this episode um but yeah really cool (laughs) yeah really cool surprise and i can't wait to you know see even more of him in the future um but then going on from there uh you know tiva's like hey you know uh at first he wants to send a transmission to Coruscant to ask for help. And Zeb is the one that's like, man, they're swamped. You know, they haven't returned any of my transmissions in weeks. Like, you know, you'll, you'll never get back up from them in time. And he goes, okay, well, I'll just have to go uh, talk to them in person. You know, they can't ignore me if I, uh, you know, just show up on their doorstep. So that's exactly what he does. He goes back to Coruscant, goes to, um, I don't know if it's like new Republic HQ or whatever, uh, but goes to talk to a requisitions officer who's played by uh, Tim Meadows, who, uh, you know, is in everything, basically. Um, <laughs> but it was cool seeing him show up in this, too. Um, but as he's walking in to talk to him, you see Aliyah Kane is in there and she notices him going by and then, um, you know, kind of intrudes on their conversation and, uh, you know, under a polite guise, obviously, to I forget if the, uh, the officer is, you know, like a captain or lieutenant or whatever. And she walks in and is like, oh, excuse me, like, I'm I'm going down to X, Y, Z. Like, can I get you anything? And, um, you know, just kind of acts like she just happens to overhear some of their conversation. And they're talking about the pirate stuff going on on Navarro. And she's like, oh, yeah, actually, like, because I did some time in the Outer Rim. Like, I've been there. Um and she's kind of being helpful and, and talking about Navarro, but she's like, actually, uh, you know, they're they're not a member world of the New Republic, just FYI. They haven't signed the charter yet. You know, again, acting like she's being all innocent and just trying to offer some helpful information. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the captain or whatever is like, oh, that's not good. And, you know, because Tava obviously is trying to get reinforcements and authorization to go help him out. Um, and... Uh, you know, then he and Kane kind of get into it over her being an Imperial and he doesn't really trust her. And she's like, oh, I saw the light. And he's like, you didn't see the light. You were captured. <laughs> um, and at one point she says, uh, you know, as the officer is being like, you know, yeah, you know, I, I really don't know if we can afford the resources and stuff right now, especially for a, a planet that's not a member world. And she's like, you know, maybe this is a good chance for them to see the benefits of becoming a member world. This, you know, essentially saying, hey, leave them out to dry and kind of force them to come begging to you. Um, and again, Tiva's like, uh, you know, oh, yeah, by just letting them suffer. Like, that sounds like a real imperial point of view. Um, so it was cool seeing, you know, their little verbal sparring match, especially knowing, you know, what we know that she certainly seems to still be working for the empire. Um, and then we get some stuff later on in the, maybe they might even talk about it during this scene, but it's kind of a continued theme throughout the episode that there's some suspicion that these pirates might be working for the empire or that, um, you know, that there's something, somebody else out there pulling the strings or that these aren't 
isolated incidents. And and Tava says as much as he's, you know, kind of pleading his case. He's like, you know, first Moff Gideon took over Navarro with stormtroopers and now there's pirates taking over and there's other incidents like this happening. Like this is not an isolated incident. This stuff is all connected. Um, which again, seems to be, you know, why Kane is taking an interest in this too and trying to kind of thwart his plans. So um, just another, I mean, it was cool. Great to be back on Coruscant again and cool to get, you know, just kind of these character moments of these two trying to kind of suss out each other's motivations and having this little verbal sparring match. Um, and also again, you know, seeing more of sort of the bureaucracy of the new Republic and like, they're trying to do the right thing, but you know, they're swamped. They've got a lot on their plate and, uh, you know, being held back by red tape and stuff. And they're kind of unable to act and, uh, do what's necessary to, help people in need when it counts. So um, kind of, you know, just laying more of that groundwork for why the resistance, you know, why it's necessary for the resistance to rise up and how the first order could rise up under the nose of the new Republic. So um, yeah, all this stuff was great too. Yeah. Carson Tiva really shined in the scene. I absolutely loved his exchange between Elijah Kane and uh, Tim Meadows, character, just, you know, calling out all the, all the, excuses and the reasons not to do it and just really calling out all like their bs that they were throwing out <laughs> where it was like no just like as, as you said where he calls out about uh, letting them or like hey, come, we should let them uh this will be a good opportunity for them to realize why they should join the new republic and he's all by letting him suffer that sounds like an imperialistic point of view like you said i love that line it's really calling her out it's like how crazy and ridiculous that sounds when they're trying to be the opposite of what the empire was doing but yet um, even though she's supposedly reformed and under the amnesty program still spouting out some of that imperial thinking there and just even too um where he's i love that line where he calls her out also as far as being like oh you didn't see the light you were liberated or you were captured um, not that she's tries to liberate it, but like he sees right through her, and you could tell that he's someone he doesn't really trust. That she's really uh, reformed and hasn't completely uh, shed away her imperial past, which obviously she hasn't, as we learned from the third episode of the season. But uh, Carson Tiva wasn't having it here in those debates that he was having in this scene. I loved how he was wasn't taking it; he was just saying what needed to be said to both of them. And even though it didn't work, and he wasn't able to get uh the troops and the squadron needed to go out in the approval to go help navarro um it was just he made his point across pretty clear even though they didn't adhere to it and it's just cool to see him uh really not compromise his ideals and his uh, suspicion of what's really going on because obviously we know in the end he's right to be suspicious about all this and we got that line that we heard him in the trailer about saying how by the time you realize it it's going to be too late and we know that will eventually be the case. But again, like you said, it's still cool to see uh, the groundwork being laid in this very early stages for uh, the resistance to be needed and necessary um, to compete against once the New Republic doesn't view the First Order as a threat or even acknowledges it really. And now um, you could see it all started here and eventually led to the downfall as we see in The Force Awakens. So yeah, just a great moment for Carson Tiva as a character here. And just, you know, even though he had to take um, no from them, but really not taking no for an answer because he's going to do his own thing once he reaches out uh, to Mando, as we see in the upcoming sequence here. But I thought a great character moment for Carson Tiva here and just really showing 
uh, how like the true rebels and those who fought in the rebellion against the empire, those who really tro- hold true the ideals of what they fought for and kind of what needs to be done still in the galaxy, even though most of the higher ups in the new Republic are viewing this as a time of peace and the empire is done away with. We don't have to worry about that, but still, um, you still need to watch out for those threats, and I'm glad we are seeing characters like Carson Teva, and obviously, I'm sure many of those pilots that we saw in that bar feel the same way he does. So, just a great moment mm-hmm. for him as a character. So, it was a really cool way, as you kind of mentioned too. Probably stuff we'd be getting more in the Rangers of the New Republic series, but I am glad that if it is because we're not getting that series anymore, we are seeing elements of it sprinkled out throughout the course of these live action series, like The Mandalorian. And maybe somewhere other shows down the line too, which is cool. So, yeah, I thought it was just another cool way to show what's going on in the state of the New Republic still being in its infancy and trying to deal with um, st- its control over the galaxy, where um, they're just realizing, or those within it are realizing that uh, things can't be done, even though they really <laughs> the, the right things that need to be done can't always be done where they have the support of the new Republic as the main new uh, government in the galaxy. So again, just more fascinating stuff uh, to see how uh, this, the politics and the operation of the new Republic is operating in this uh, time period as they're still trying to (laughs) deal with the aftermath of the fallen empire and kind of stake their own claim as how they're going to run things here. But it's obviously not off to the greatest to start as we saw in episode three of the season and kind of seeing more of that bureaucracy win out um, against uh, the right things that need to be done. Yeah, definitely. And I also, I like Aliyah Kane's line when, you know, she's kind of uh, sparring with Teva and uh, she says, you know, I was shown the light or she, she's talking about sort of persuading the people on Navarro. And she says uh, it often takes, you know, a, a looking at something from a different perspective before one can see the light or something like that. And that's when he says, uh yeah except your people didn't see the light you were captured and she says no i was liberated and you can kind of take that as her sort of implying that like no the new republic didn't capture me they liberated me from the empire and you know allowed me to become a better person and all this kind of stuff but i also think she maybe had a a second meaning of that in her own mind as she said it which is that she was captured by the new republic but then has been liberated by Thrawn or uh, Gideon or whoever she's still working for. That's like giving her an opportunity to still be part of the empire. Um, Mm. And I think in her mind, that's, you know, being liberated. So um, yeah, great back and forth between those two characters. Great, uh, you know, just dialogue and character stuff. Um, And then of course we see Teva, you know, leave from there and go to uh, find Mando on, I guess we still don't know the name of the planet that the Mandalorians are hiding out on. Um, But he's flying above, he sees Bo-Katan's ship, goes down to land. Uh, Of course we find out that really the reason he was able to find the planet in the first place was because he worked with R5 in the Rebellion and (laughs) R5, even though he's supposedly loyal to Mando, was willing to betray the location of the uh mando covert to you know his old rebel pilot buddy um that to me Did was really one of those know, things... or was it just carson tracking r5 like without r5 knowing it but well he did say he said thanks r5 and kind of gave him a little salute which to maybe you know seemed to suggest to me that r5 had sent him those coordinates as opposed to him just tracking hmm. uh you know being able to track r5 but it could have been that too i don't know 
Um, yeah, R5 probably wants to get the heck out of there. So he's probably just uh, maybe, trying to get any help maybe. he could get. <laughs> I mean, I've said it before. This is, you know, a minor gripe. But that, to me, like, the inclusion of R5 in all of this and then having it be, you know, he goes from being the droid that Luke almost bought on Tatooine to then, oh, he's, he's fought in the Rebellion and now he's ended up back on Tatooine and, you know, being sold to Mando and then, uh, you know, is helping lead former Rebels to, you know, this Mando hideout and stuff. It's like... That's, you know, when people complain about all these character cameos and stuff and making the universe feel small and everything like that to me is pushing it a little bit. I'm like, <laughs> you know, the random droid that Luke almost bought instead of R2. Why does he still have such a big role in all this? I, you know, it could have been any other droid that Carson Tava served with in the rebellion, but um such an r5 hater jeez <laughs> it's it's not that i'm an r5 hater i just don't get why some people are such big r5 lovers i'm like that he's just never had any like special significance to me but it is what it is i mean if people are happy to see him in there then more power to you um <laughs> And it was, it, you know, it, it didn't completely pull me out of it or anything, but it's always, you know, anytime there's like a plot point that revolves around him, I'm always kind of like, eh, okay, sure, whatever. I thought it was uh, a fun misdirect, though, because when he says, there was one among you who fought with me in the rebellion, you're all thinking, all the Mandos are looking at each other, and even I'm thinking, oh, man, are we going to get a reveal about a new Mandalorian character who uh, fought in the rebellion? But then when R5 comes out, I'm like, ah, of course, <laughs> he's the one. Yeah, because I was thinking the same thing. And then when R5 rolled out, I was like, oh, this guy. <laughs> OK. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but it was obviously and again, is one of those things where like if Rangers of the New Republic was allowed to be its own thing, I don't think that ever even would have come up. But it was kind of a way to tie those two storylines together. Um, yeah, and it still works well. It's not like I think. One's pulling from the other where because we're getting a little bit of the New Republic stuff, it's taken away from the Mandalorian stuff. I think it's all tying it together. Re regardless of what I said, which I still feel of the third episode of the season being a little spending too much time there um, and what they were trying to do. Overall, at least especially for this episode, it felt a nice, seamless, uh, co cohesive uh, storytelling with these, uh, like, I don't want to say like a plot A and a plot B, but you... It started off on one direction and then it came together with the main Mandalorian stuff and it fit nicely. Yeah, I thought. yeah definitely. Um, no, yeah, I did like how they connected everything together. It just <laughs> R5 was like a shaky, uh, you know, kind of a, a fragile thing holding it all together. But <laughs> um, I still like the way that, you know, that they were able to connect those two stories and that we're able to get more of this outside world building of what's going on in the rest of the galaxy and on Coruscant and everything and relate it to the Mandalorian story. And obviously it's all kind of leading to uh, the Imperial remnant and some kind of big conflict with the new Republic and the Mandalorians are going to get involved in that. And so it doesn't feel like it's a completely separate thing. It feels mm -hmm. like it makes sense for us to be seeing this stuff kind of building up at the same time. Um, so anyway, yeah, he comes and finds him on, on uh, you know, the Mando planet and um, tells him that Grief Karga is in trouble. And he's like, hey, I know you got your own stuff going on. And, you know, my hands are tied like Coruscant won't do anything about it. But um, I just thought I'd let you know that, you know, your friend is in trouble and you might want to do something about it. And then he takes off and leaves. And he he's, you know, the Mandalorians talked about, oh, we well, have to relocate the covert now because this guy knows where we are. And uh, he leaves with the promise of like, hey, I know you'll ignore me and relocate anyways, but like, I promise I won't tell anybody where you are. Um, 
just kind of showing that Carson Tava is a good dude. Um, and even though he's kind of had his brushes with Mando in the past, um, you know, he's kind of willing to let all that go. And Mando even says like, Hey, he helped me out, uh, one time before. So like, I'm going to give him a pass and let him go when Paz Vizsla wants to just kill him and be like, Hey, we could just kill him. And then we don't have to move. Cause then nobody knows where we are. So, um, it was nice to see him and Mando have that little rapport and mutual respect. Yeah, um, and I'm sure we haven't seen the last of him. So it's always fun when he shows up. Um, but then we get this cool scene where Mando is, uh, Din Djarin, I should say. It's hard to call him Mando now when he's surrounded by a bunch of other Mandalorians. Um, yeah. But, I mean, I've gotten used to calling Grogu Grogu over Baby Yoda now, but still, uh, Mando still fits <laughs> when you're talking about yeah. it. Even Grief Parker calls him Mando still, so that helps. Well, exactly. Yeah, it's like you still have characters that refer to him as Mando, but, um, and, you know, when he's off doing his own thing with, you know, Luke or Boba Fett or whatever, like you can call him Mando, but when he's surrounded by uh, the armor and Paz Vizsla and all these guys, it's like, oh, they're all Mandos too. Um, so Din Djarin uh, petitions the rest of the Mandalorians and, um, you know, tells them, hey, like, I know a lot of you helped me fight against Grief Karga before. Um, and it led to the Empire hunting you down on Navarro, but like grief has changed since then. And he helped me protect Grogu and, you know, he's offered me attractive land on his planet. Um, and, you know, if we really do have to relocate, maybe we can go to a planet where we're welcome and, you know, we don't have to hide and we can live above ground and our kids can play in the sun and stuff like that. Um, and kind of makes this nice emotional appeal to, uh, you know, you can understand why it would be like, Hey, yeah, we don't, you know, maybe it's time for us to finally stop hiding. Um, and then Paz Vizsla comes up and, and I kind of had a feeling they were going to do this. Um, but I still thought it was really Same. cool that he gets up and he's looking all intimidating and he's like, why should we continue to risk our lives for Din Djarin and his foundling? And why should we go, uh, you know, help this guy grief cargo on Navarro that we fought against before. And he goes, because we're Mandalorians. And, uh, you know, talked about how Din saved his son and Bo-Katan even, you know, chased that Raptor thing and didn't give up on her son when the rest of them did. And how, uh, you know, he's like willing to fully embrace the two of them as Mandalorians and welcome them into the clan and, you know, accept their ideas and stuff. And he says, Hey, these two are proposing, a brighter future for our clan and uh, they're willing to lay down their lives and fight for it. So I'm willing to fight for it too. Um, and convinces everyone else to join along to a rousing chorus of this is the way. So, um, yeah, that was really cool. And then of course, you know, they're, they're using the armor's hammer as like a talking stick and yeah. the person holding it gets <laughs> to be that. the one talking to the rest of the group. That was kind of a cool touch. So, um, yeah, just a neat scene here kind of showing the uh, the camaraderie of the Mandalorians. And much like how in that episode, The Sin, back in, in season one, where at the beginning of the episode, uh, Din, you know, comes to the armor with all his Beskar and she makes him all the new armor. And, um, you know, Paz Vizsla kind of gets all up in his face about it and is like, oh, you know, he got this from the Empire and there are enemies and he and dinner kind of going at it um but then by the end of that episode he's leading the charge with the rest of the mandalorians to come save din from grief and the bounty hunters that are after him and stuff and so 
Um, just kind of showing that even though they have, they're like, like at this point, grief or not grief, Din and Paz Vizla almost have kind of like a, a little brother, big brother type relationship where like they're always fighting all the time. Mm-hmm. They're always disagreeing. They're, you know, getting in fist fights. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, they're essentially family, you know, they're part of the same clan. They've got a loyalty and a duty to each other and they're always going to have each other's backs when the chips are down. So, um, yeah, it was really cool to see Paz step up like that. And then, uh, of course, he gets some awesome moments later in the episode as well. In fact, this episode made me finally pull the trigger and buy the Paz Vizsla Black Series figure that I've... I keep thinking about it. I'm like, man, that looks like a really cool figure. And he's one of those characters that's like kind of a minor character where like I don't need to have his action figure. But he's also a cool enough character that... And, you know, he just looks really cool. That I'm like, that would be a cool figure to have. And after this, after this episode, I was like, yep, I need it. I'm getting it. <laughs> yep i saw your tweet of the action figure and it does look pretty sweet in that box so i have to say how outdated or how old is the figure because it's just labeled as heavy infantry mandalorian it doesn't even say yeah so it, it came out in i think that figure was released during season one okay. um it originally it was a best buy exclusive now you can get it on amazon and other places but um yeah it was before we knew what his name was it was just they just labeled him as heavy infantry mandalorian from those first couple episodes where like we saw him um but we did i don't think did we know his name until was the first time we found out his name in the book of boba fett i think that's the first time it was actually spoken but i want to say we knew his name already before that that's what i thought too that it was either like in the credits or they had just released it you know they had revealed it on starwars.com or something yeah. Um, yeah, I think we knew from some kind of behind the scenes stuff, we knew his name, but we didn't know his name right away when the character first showed up. And so, yeah, they had his his figure just labeled as uh, heavy infantry Mandalorian. Um, but luckily, like it is Paz Vizsla, like it's, you know, all the details are accurate and everything. It's not one of those situations like... Um, I don't know, there's been a couple Star Wars figures like this where they'll... They'll give them a di- like they'll give the figure a different name, and it's clearly supposed to be a certain character, but like it's changed a little bit, and it doesn't look exactly like that character. Um, like I remember, I had a, a pack of like three and three quarter inch Clone Wars figures from back in the day, and it came with like Darth Maul and Savage Press, and then like Night Sister Mother or something, which was like <laughs> it was supposed to be Mother Talzin, but it wasn't exactly Mother Talzin, and so there were some details on the figure where it was like this looks like mother Talzin, but it's not exactly mother Talzin. So <laughs> luckily like in this case, heavy, heavy infantry Mandalorian, like it's Paz Vizsla and he's an awesome looking figure. I've got him right here on my shelf next to the armor and Din and Bo-Katan and they're an awesome looking group of Mando figures. So this isn't the one, cause they did make one. I think it was just an exclusive somewhere or where you could take off his helmet. And it is John Favreau's face under there. That, that like a- I think was maybe a comic-con exclusive or a celebration exclusive because they also made a dave filoni trapper wolf one where it's the rebel pilot with dave filoni's uh head on it um in fact i don't i don't even know for sure if those figures are out yet because you know how it is nowadays like they'll reveal figures like a year in advance and then you can pre-order it and you get it like eight months later um so i remember seeing that but that came out after this first figure did Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so this this is not the removable helmet John Favreau head one. Um, or actually, I don't even know if that one has a helmet with it or if it's just 
you know, if it's supposed to just kind of be like, it's a John Favreau figure in a Mandalorian outfit. Um, I wonder if it is eventually going to be John Favreau's face that we see. Cause I don't, depending on how the season goes at the end, or maybe just in the series, I think we're eventually going to see most of the Mandalorians in this culvert take off their helmets or remove their helmets. And see, I was thinking about that and I'm like, cause the, um, it's like a big stunt guy who plays Paz Vizsla. Like it's not John Favreau on set. Yeah, in the obviously. <laughs> Um, so it's like, if you were to actually have him look like him, you'd have to kind of do that just in close-ups. But I also think that would be weird because like, I mean, it's not like John Favreau is a, a super like A-list household name as an actor, but I feel like most people watching the show would recognize him. Um, and yet there's probably a lot of people who maybe don't realize that he voices Paz Vizsla, especially people who haven't watched Clone Wars and don't realize how similar he sounds to Pre Vizsla. Um, I just feel like, you know, after all these seasons of having him in the show to then have him take off his helmet and it be Jon Favreau, like it might be a little weird. I don't know if that would work, especially because again, you know, Jon obviously is not the guy in the outfit. So, um. Yeah, I was by the end of that, by the end of this episode, that definitely crossed my mind. I was like, wait, are we ever going to see Paz Vizsla with this helmet off? And is it going to be John Favreau? Because I wonder how they're going to pull that off. Yeah. But Unless we'll like see. he dies or something before <laughs> the Mandos change their way in that covert. So, yeah, we'll see. But yeah. I, I'm with you. That was just a great scene. Um, seeing Mando make that petition to the rest of the Mandalorians there. And then Paz Vizsla back him up and saying, yeah, this is what we have to do because we're Mandalorian. It's such a great moment. And it just, I just love hearing Din recount their history with uh, him and Grief Karga and the other Mandalorians and their history with Navarro. Just how things have changed so much since that first season. As Din says, he had a change of heart, obviously. So he's a, Grief Karga is a different man than he was during season one. And just how far these characters have come from that third episode of the very first season when they were trying to kill each other, Mando and grief. <laughs> I had a shootout where Mando thought he was, Mando thought he killed him <laughs> first right there. So, but now they're just how close as friends they are after what they've been through in the uh, subsequent stories and seasons that we've gotten since that third episode, the sin. So it's just kind of crazy to think about how different things are now between Din and grief. And now the Mandalorians are going to go fight to help, grief and the citizens of Navarro after they were had to fight him for saving Mando and then make their way off of Navarro to relocate um, themselves and just start a new chapter in their life after losing a bunch of their fellow Mandalorians after the Empire discovered them and wiped most of them out and just how they had to rebuild almost from nothing because it was just Paz Vizsla and the armor as we saw in the Book of Boba Fett so again just seeing things progress for these characters was just really cool to see and think about as Din was making his petition for the Mandalorians to help and I just think it just strengthens the reason why they're doing it and you know, the liberation that they're going to give to the people in Navarro but also for themselves too and just doing this because they know it's going to be better for themselves as well uh, as Din explains to them the possibilities of what this could mean if they do help Grief Cargo so just a great moment all around for these characters and just or seeing the Mandalorians again, how I talked about in the fourth episode or just cool to see Mandalorians in their element as far as training to be warriors that we know them to be, but now kind of see them as how they have uh, discussions and how they try to plan out um, their future. It was just kind of cool to see how they operate on that front too. And as you mentioned, how you, you can only talk if you have the armorers uh, hammer forge hammered, 
uh, that she uses. So just a kind of cool little thing that is significant amongst the Mandalorians where you can always speak amongst uh, if you were if you're holding that when they're having these type of uh, discussions here. So just a lot of cool stuff. And again, uh, getting a, more some more glimpses into Mandalorian culture that we never really got to see before. So, yeah, I really love this moment. It just really set the stage up for I mean, we're rooting for the Mandalorians anyway, <laughs> once we saw them in the trailer. Uh, to have this big action sequence, but even more so now um, after we got the scene here with Din uh, kind of asking for the help. Just some great stuff. Yeah, definitely. One does not speak unless one knows or one has the hammer. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it was cool just, like you said, getting to see, you know, just kind of more facets of their culture. And um, now that we're really seeing them kind of living together and operating together as a group, and just seeing what that's like and, and kind of the ins and outs of their daily life. Um, but of course, they all agree to go, uh, you know, help grief and the people of Navarro. And so they get their battle plan together. They're all heading there. And man, just the shot of the uh, the N1 and Bogotan's gauntlet fighter, like traveling through hyperspace together. And it kind of starts on like a top down shot of like the hyperspace tunnel. And you see the ships going up and then it it tilts up. Um, was just, I mean, that was one of those really cool shots of just seeing two awesome ships together in, uh, you know, just a cool hyperspace shot. Yeah. Um, I was keeping my eye out for more purple too, but none this time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, oh, I guess before that, it was like, before they leave the planet, you know, Bogotan kind of goes over the plan with them and explains how it's going to work dropping out of the gunship and their whole battle plan for, uh, you know, taking on the pirate fighter and Din distracting the snub fighters and all that kind of stuff. So they get their battle plan together. They they go to Navarro and uh, boy, do they execute that battle plan. I mean, this was just <laughs> such a cool action sequence. Um, you know, we got Gory and Chard and the pirates, which by the way, before I forget, I got to mention, I freaking love Gory and Chard's little Ugnaught, who's like oh, Mr. Yes. Smee, like yep. Mr. Smee from <laughs> Peter Pan. He's got the same outfit with the striped shirt and the headscarf yeah. and everything. That was so funny. I'm like, I don't all, you know, I, sometimes it can be hit or miss when Star Wars has those kind of like tongue in cheek references to other things. But it's like, if you're going to have pirates and it's not going to be, you know, they obviously didn't use Hondo for this, but, um, you know, just going all out, even at the beginning of this episode, when the title, uh, the, you know, the episode title of the pirate came up and it was like a very like sea shanty piratey version That's of right. the Mandalorian theme that played over that title card. Um, but, you know, down to, you know, their outfits, the little Mr. Smee, uh, sidekick guy the fact that this big you know starship battleship thing has like a big mast wheel that you turn to turn the ship just like a boat would um was just uh you know i that's one of those things where i'm like you know what go all out make these pirates as piratey as possible <laughs> right um and it was just a ton of fun so um yeah, I love all the character designs and the ship designs and stuff. And again, just seeing Mando and Bo-Katan and the Mandalorians in action against them was just awesome. Um, you know, seeing Din come in in the N1. And uh, man, as much as I do miss the Razor Crest, um, they've done a good job so far of justifying the N1's existence this year by putting Din in some situations where he's got to take out enemies in the air and just pulling off maneuvers and stuff that you just couldn't do in the Razor Crest. 
Um, I'm sorry. I'm just going to say it, but I do not miss the Razor Crest with the N1. It's <laughs> delivering on all levels for me as this made Starship now. I mean, the Razor Crest was great for those first two seasons, but the N1 is just, you can't beat it. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, especially. Yeah, especially in a dogfight. I mean, again, just the kind of aerial maneuvers he's pulling off. I love that, you know, he flies in, he takes out a couple of the fighters, and Grief is with, you know, the, the refugees of Navarro. They're, like, out sheltering out on the lava flat somewhere. And he looks up and recognizes Mando's ship, and he, he calls him over the comm. Um, and he's like, hey, thanks for coming, Mando. And Mando's like, oh, yeah, I decided to come back and take you up on your offer for that land. Um and Grief's like, be careful, my friend. They've got you outnumbered 10 to 1 as Mando is being chased by two ships. And he, like, takes a 90-degree right turn and the two ships just crash into each other. And as Mando is flying out of the fireball, he goes, I like those odds. Um, <laughs> as a callback to, you know, one of his iconic lines from season one. That was just such a cool moment. And I love um, Grief's response, too, to saying, of course you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um so, yeah, I mean, we got Mando taking out pirate ships in the air. Then Bo-Katan comes in with the gauntlet, you know, parks it over the town. And we get that awesome sequence from the trailer of the Mandalorians just doing the, you know, the aerial, I don't know, extraction or whatever you call it in military terms. You know, the the the, um, the drop landing or whatever. Um, but, yeah, just dropping out of the ship, landing with their jetpacks, like landing on top of the pirates and just, you know, immediately taking them out and doing all these awesome maneuvers, being cheered on by the Anzellans and the Kowaki and monkey lizards there on uh, <laughs> Navarro. Um, and then, Kowaki you know, and monkey they, lizards actually helping them out and just letting them know they're going to be ambushed, too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> snitching on the pirates. Um, and then, you know, they get cornered, they get backed into an ambush, Paz Vizsla drops down in the middle of it and just starts mowing pirates down with his big, you know, mini gun. Uh, but then the pirates set up a, a big turret up on the balcony, you know, cause they got the high ground, but um, then, you know, the armor shows up, uh, sneaks in behind him in that room where their turret is set up and just starts taking out guys with their hammer. And, you know, it's just everybody operating on, uh, you know, at the top of their game. Um and then Mando and Bogatan in the air together and working together to take down Gori and Shard's ship. And, you know, as a last desperate maneuver, he starts opening fire and trying to hit the civilians. Um, and, you know, kind of realizes that he's lost and is like, I'm just going to take out as many people as I can before I go down. And Mando and Bo are like, all right, we got to take out this last engine on his ship before he starts hitting the townspeople. And they, uh, you know, they make a run on the ship and they take it out and it crashes in a big fiery ball. Um, and, uh, you know, they saved the town and saved the day. But, um, man, it was just a really fun, you know, big battle and action sequence. And like I said, you know, the, the pirates were super fun. Um, seeing all the Mandalorians in action together was just awesome. It was just a great sequence. Yeah, man, what's not to love about this action sequence here on Navarro with the Mandalorians against the pirates? Um, it delivered both um, the aerial battle and the ground battle. But... This season so far, I mean, they're three for three on aerial battles. Every sequence we've had has just been better than the last one. It's just awesome. You described the great stuff Mando did in the N1, and then when Bo-Katan comes up to help him out and take out uh, Guardian Shed, like, it was just awesome. I love the line, too. Um, I forget his name, but the pirate we saw in season one who was first uh, chasing Mando how it here he's like trying to tell his other pirates oh he's above you then like a second later he's below you like, oh yeah uh vain 
is uh, just from the first episode. Yeah, so just like just they're just so outmatched <laughs> by Mando in the end one, and it was just great uh, to see more of that in action. I just absolutely loved it. Um, but again, the, seeing the Mandalorians in action, um, kind of seem in a way we've never seen uh, too much of before. Kind of got glimpses of it in the flashback sequence of Death Watch rescuing uh, Din in season one. But to kind of see it fully played out here was just awesome. And just, I just love like the military tactical style they had in their operation and just how they were communicating with each other, how they were covering each other's back, how they were walking through the streets in Navarro. It just felt like they were a special ops team um, going on a mission. And it just was really cool seeing that type of uh, action play out. But yet their characters in Mandalorian costumes. <laughs> it just looks amazing. And just seeing them. Uh, take on the pirates. It was just really, really cool. It did not disappoint. And the hype that the trailers had <laughs> for this active sequence, it was just awesome all the way around. Um, but two, I mean, no one stays dead in Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> or I shouldn't say no one, but there's a lot of characters who don't stay dead in Star Wars. And even though it looks like he went down with the ship, I would love to see Garian Shard in more adventures or more stories that maybe not in the Mandalorian, but in other stuff, because I just loved his character as a villain again. Um, as you mentioned, is really diving to that pirate uh, aesthetic more so than like Hondo and his crew. So it was just, I was kind of sad to actually to see the ship go down, even though you're rooting for Din, Bo-Katan and the Mandalorians to win, obviously, but I just love the character of Garian Shard, his look, his pirates, the ship. So part of me was a little bummed to see the ship go down. I was hoping they kind of, escape even their ship would be damaged but then they'd have to leave navarro and hightail it out of there but then that pirate van as you said was the only one who <laughs> ran tail and left everybody so he looks to be one of the few survivors but man what an action sequence to have uh this well at least for now i'll be surprised if the pirate story continues on for the rest of the season but if it's going to end here it ended literally with a bang <laughs> with a, the ship going down with just an overall really really cool action sequence scene uh mandalorians like we've never seen them in action before and just some really really cool aerial combat so yeah what's not to love about the sequence it was fantastic now i will say you you said you know we probably won't get more of the pirate storyline this season i think there's at least a little bit more to show um because the fact that vane got away I think is significant. I think Gorian Chard is done as much as I would love to see more of him. Um, you know, he didn't seem to be running for an escape pod or anything. He was standing at the wheel, just kind of screaming as he was going down with the ship. Um, I think he's done. But when Vane was like, it's been a pleasure serving you captain, but uh, I think it's time to part ways. And he takes off. Um, I think a, we could see him connect with other pirates and maybe try to come back and get revenge on Mando because Gorian and Char did mention like the pirate nation. Um, and so as much as you would think that pirates are kind of like out for themselves and wouldn't necessarily want to all rally together and come to the defense of one guy who got taken out by some Mandalorians, if anything, you think like, Oh, well let's go plunder anything that Gorian and Char left behind or something like that. Um, I think that could at least pave the way to maybe introduce other pirate characters, maybe Hondo or maybe just another villainous faction in the future. But I also think, you know, like I said, they had alluded several times to the fact that these pirates may not have been working on their own, that there may have been other forces at play behind this. And so I was expecting 
at the end of this episode, I was expecting to see Vane go and meet with like Moff Gideon or, you know, some Imperial contact or something and be like, hey, you know, you paid us to go raid Navarro, but, uh, you know, they've got Mandalorians protecting them now. And so it failed or something like that. Um, as much as it did seem like, you know, from the first episode when they showed up there and we're just talking about... Um, how like, oh, hey, this used to be our old stomping grounds and you paid for this saloon with like money that you made from our boss and stuff. It, like it seemed like the pirates would have enough reason to be there on their own and have their own motivation for kind of having a bone to pick with Grief Karga. But again, um, you know, all of Carson Tava's warnings about, you know, this not being an isolated incident, I think might have some merit to it. Um so the fact that Vane got away, I would not be surprised if we see him again and uh, maybe see him go meet up with somebody that we find out those pirates were working for. Yeah, I think you're actually probably going to be right about that because if we didn't get kind of a little bit of that foreshadowing from Carson Tiva, it would just make it feel like, okay, he's just a cowardly pirate who's running away. But because he did mention how there's possibly a connection between the two, it wouldn't surprise me if he is kind of a plant by Moff Gideon uh, amongst the pirates to maybe try to take back Navarro uh, for himself there. So I don't know. I think you might be onto something there where he is going to be that connection between uh, the Empire and the pirates. If there is any, it will be through Bane. So I do like where you're going with that. Yeah, we'll see. Like I said, I was kind of surprised that we didn't see a payoff to that at the end of the episode, but you know, there's obviously still room that we could see that um, maybe the beginning of the next episode or sometime later this season. So um, we'll see where that goes. But um, yeah, you know, just again, great sequence. And then, you know, uh, everybody comes back down to the ground and the people of Navarro are celebrating and grief, you know, thanks the Mandalorians for their brave service and um gives them you know a large swath of land and he says you know from these flats to these canyons or whatever i grant you know all this land to the fine people of mandalore i believe um, one of the names was bullock canyon which is a pretty cool nod to jeremy bullock you know what i did not even make that connection but you're right that is cool um that yeah they would name that in honor of uh the guy who played the first mandalorian we ever saw on screen right <laughs> um who now may or may not actually be a mandalorian but you know you, <laughs> you can't deny uh jeremy bullock's legacy and all this That's what um you're... but yeah so that was a nice touch and then in the middle of that whole celebration paz vizsla comes up to bo-katan and is like hey the armorer wants to speak with you and he leads her down into the old sewer tunnels that the mandalorians used to hide out in um and, uh, you know, brings her to the uh, the old forge that the armor used to use down there. Um, and, you know, the armor and Bo-Katan have a conversation and she's talking about how uh, it, she makes sort of this interesting connection where she's like, uh, she's talking about her forge. And then she's like, I've been to the great one on Mandalore and heard it, you know, ringing with, you know, the songs of a thousand hammers and how great it was and, and everything. Um, and here, you know, this is a simple one, but they serve the same purpose and they're still the same thing. And they're still both important to Mandalorians. And, um, I think kind of the connection that she's making there as we get into, you know, more of this scene, maybe is that she, maybe she has come to realize that Mandalorians from different walks of life or who don't all follow the same creed are all still Mandalorians. Just like at the end of the day, a forge is a forge. 
whether it's big or small or it's on Mandalore or some other planet, like a Mandalorian is a Mandalorian. And right now they need all the Mandalorians they can get. And she tells Bo-Katan, remove your helmet. And Bo-Katan's like, wait, what? And she's like, do you trust me? Do you respect my station? And she's like, yeah. And she goes, well, then remove your helmet. Um, and Bo-Katan does. And uh, the armor says, um, you know, she talks about how Bo-Katan has walked in both worlds. Like she has walked the creed and she has walked with Mandalorians who don't follow the creed. And then also talks about how she saw the mythosaur and she's like, you know, I was taught growing up that the mythosaur only existed in legends, but yet you saw one. Um, and basically tells Bo-Katan in so many words, almost like you're the chosen one. Like, you know, she's like, we need to like, there are other Mandalorians out there. Uh, we need to unite them. We need all of Mandalore united. And you're the one to do that. Like you can, you can walk both worlds. You've seen the mythosaur, all this kind of stuff. Like you can be the one to bring all the Mandalorians back together. Um, and they go back out to where everybody else is. And Bo-Katan now is walking among all the other Mandalorians without her helmet on. And everybody's like, what's going on? And the armor says, uh, you know, Bogatan is going off to find other Mandalorians to join us. And Paz is like, but she's not wearing her helmet. And the armor just says, uh, you know, Bogatan now walks both worlds and, uh, you know, she's the one that can unite us. And then she says, it's time to retake Mandalore. Um, so it's interesting to see the armor now kind of getting ambitious and buying into what originally was, you know, Bogatan's quest that she wanted to do, which was to try to retake Mandalore. Um, but I want to get, before we really kind of dive into this scene, I want to talk about the final scene after this, and then yeah. we can kind of make our theories and predictions and speculations, because there's been, I think a lot of people are reading a lot of different motives into this final scene. Um, can we trust the armor? Can we trust Bogotan? Are they conspiring together? Is one of them trying to use the other? Like, who's got the ulterior motives here? It's clear that, like, something shady is going on, but we don't really know who we can trust. Um, and then, and it also seems to be, you know, it's a triumphant moment for the Mandalorians. They're like, Hey, yeah, we've got this, you know, this great member of our clan who now is going to go out and recruit other members and we're going to retake Mandalore. And it seems like this great moment, but you're still kind of left thinking like, Hmm, what's actually going on here though. Um, and then it cuts to, uh, Carson Tava's X-Wing floating out in the darkness of space. And he comes upon, a derelict uh, Imperial vessel, which I guess is actually now, you know, it's a, an Imperial Lambda shuttle, um, but seems to now have been being used by the New Republic because he says it's a New Republic prison transport. Um, and it's, you know, it's damaged. It's floating adrift in space. Um, and he calls his, uh, you know, his other, I forget the other pilot's name, but um, that's Lieutenant Reed, I think. Um, Tava calls him out. He's the other, the, the one that was played by that other, uh, Luke actor. Um, and he's asking him for information. He's like, Hey, has there been a ship reported missing? And he's like, well, there's one, but the records on it are sealed. And, you know, it seems kind of shady. And, um, so Tava's like, all right, you know, R7, send a probe out. And the droid launches a little probe that goes and floats into the ship. And he's watching the holocom readout. And as he's doing this, uh, Reed is looking at more information on the ship and he's like the flight logs of the ship match the times of the ship that was supposed to be transporting Moff Gideon to trial. Um, which I wonder how that works. I'm assuming maybe after Mando season two, like maybe they were holding Moff Gideon on a prison planet, like out in the outer rim or something. And then maybe they were transporting him to Coruscant for trial when this happened. 
Um, because I'm like, why would you not just be holding him on Coruscant? But you know, mm. I, maybe they have other prison facilities elsewhere. Like they they didn't really go much into the specifics, except they just said this was it was supposed to be transporting Moff Gideon to trial. Um, clearly the ship has been attacked. There's a bunch of new Republic uh guards inside that are all dead and floating, you know, frozen in the the vacuum of space, and Moff Gideon's not there. Um and Tava's like, I knew it. I, I had heard rumors and I had a bad feeling that, you know, Moff Gideon never made it to trial and he's still out there. So that's basically confirmed now. And then he notices something and he tells his droid to zoom in on it and finds a fragment of Beskar embedded in the wall of the ship. And uh, he tells Lieutenant Reed and Reed says, you know, are you saying that Moff Gideon was freed by Mandalorians? Um, and it it just cuts there and the episode ends. So, um I want to give you my theory on all this. And then I'm interested to hear your theory as well. Because I've heard a lot of different speculations and things on what could be going on. Um, it seems like the two most common theories I've heard is that the armorer is up to something and that she's the one who can't be trusted. Um, or that uh, that the Beskar was a plant um you know that moff gideon escaped somehow was just freed by the empire and then he left some beskar behind um so that the mandalorians would you know to, to kind of uh frame the mandalorians and maybe cause tension between the mandalorians and the new republic and also maybe to just get the mandalorians to point fingers at themselves um and kind of so discord but i think i think it absolutely was uh mandalorians who freed him I think, you know, there are, I mean, certainly we know there, there could be any number of Mandalorians still roaming around out in the galaxy, but we know there's one specific group that's unaccounted for, and that's Bo-Katan's group. When she tells Din at the beginning of the season that the Mandalorians who were following her all left her because she didn't get the Darksaber and are now roaming the galaxy as mercenaries. So my guess as of now, just based on the information we have to go off of, my guess is that it was that group of Mandalorians that freed Moff Gideon. Now that theory kind of branches into two theories, which is one possibility could be that they truly are working as mercenaries. They don't really care about Mandalore or Bo-Katan or the cause anymore, and they'll do anything for the highest bidder. Um, and they maybe were hired by Thrawn or some other Imperial operative to rescue Moff Gideon. And they were paid enough that they're like, Hey, you know what? This guy destroyed Mandalore. He's, you know, an enemy of our people, but you pay us enough. We'll break him out and you can do whatever you want with him. Um, and, and that's that. Or I think there's a possibility that they are still working for Bo-Katan, that she's playing some kind of long con um, and is still really in charge of this group. Um, because if you think about it, you know, she says like, oh, they they disbanded and left me because I failed to get the Darksaber. And yet they were following her the entire time before that when she didn't have the Darksaber. You know, was it just because, uh, you know, just because Din happened to be the one to fight Moff Gideon instead of her, these guys all left her? Like, maybe it's not completely implausible but it also i think is very plausible that they still could be working for her um and that bogatan actually could be 
no, you know, may, maybe she orchestrated all this and she's just kind of playing this long con to try to, you know, take control of Din's group. And, you know, she wants to lead all of Mandalore herself still. Um, now, the question is, why would she free Moff Gideon? Well, A, to maybe just use him as a, a, a tool or a bargaining chip, knowing his history with the Mandalorians and knowing how important he is to them. Like maybe she just wants to kill him herself to get revenge for everything he's done. Maybe she wants to kill him in front of the rest of the Mandalorians and be like, look, you know, I deserve to be your leader. I destroyed Moff Gideon who caused all your suffering. Um, but I also think she could be working with Moff Gideon. You know, maybe she's at such a low mm. point. She's so desperate that, she's willing to work with this guy. And it's funny, um, one of our listeners, Caleb Klingen, who's a good friend of mine, um, I was texting him about this after the episode and I was kind of like thinking this through as I was texting him and having these realizations. And I was like, but why would Bo-Katan work with Moff Gideon? Like, what would they have to gain from that? And I'm like, oh, she wants the Darksaber. He wants Grogu. And they could team up to go after Din, who has both. And, you know, feel like maybe neither of them can take him on alone or, you know, they're worried that he has the backing of the rest of the Mandalorian clan or whatever. Um, so that's my theory. Like I said, it's it's kind of a split one. I think it's Bogatan's <laughs> group of Mandalorians that freed him. I, whether Bogatan is involved in that or not, I think is still kind of up in the air. But the one, the reason I think she might be up to no good um and this is kind of drawing on factors from outside of the show, but I feel like, you know, it's like in that first episode, she's like, Din Djarin, leave me alone. I never want to see you again. I don't care about you. I don't care about Mandalore. I don't care about the Darksaber. I just want to sit in my castle and brood and pout. But then the next episode, she finds out Din is in danger, springs into action, goes, saves him, joins the clan, and she's been nothing but a good friend and ally to him since then. And it seems like everything's heading in the right direction. But I feel like every time that Dave Filoni or John Favreau or Katie Sackhoff has done press for this season and talked about Bo-Katan's character arc for the season, they keep bringing up the fact that, you know, she and Din are allies, but he has the Darksaber and that's what she wants and that there may be some conflict around that or how does she reconcile that? And we haven't really seen that be an issue this whole season yeah. up to this point. Um, in fact... One of the weird, I wouldn't call it a plot hole, but sort of a glaring omission is like nobody really has talked about the Darksaber at all this season. I mean, we've, we've only really seen it be used in the one episode where Din went to Mandalore and then Bo-Katan showed up and she used it to help free him from that like robot thing. But for Din now being accepted back into the clan and being a Mandalorian again, nobody's brought up the fact like, hey, this guy has the Darksaber. Does that make him our leader now? Um but I mean, we know he still has it. We've seen, you know, it's it's still hanging on his belt in every episode. And so it's like, when is this going to come back into play? When are we going to sort of address this? And when are we going to address the elephant in the room of like, does Bogatan still want that? And has she been after it this whole time? Or her being now accepted by the clan and being given this great responsibility in this position of leadership and her having seen the mythosaur, maybe she's going to be like, Hey, you know what? Maybe I really do deserve the dark saber. And uh, you know, maybe she really has kind of put that ambition aside, but maybe it's going to start bubbling back up again now. Um, so yeah, I'm like, I, I really don't know if we can trust Bogotan again, whether she's been 
hiding something this whole time or whether she's just going to kind of develop, uh, you know, sort of that lust for power again. Um, but yeah, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out over these last few episodes, but I'm interested to hear your take and, uh, did, were you thinking along the same lines or something completely different? Yeah. Yours is interesting, but mine is different. <laughs> uh, because for Bo-Katan, I don't know, it would be, a very great job on her and acting like the way she is because I just really feel everything we've seen of her has been so genuine so far in the season where even when Din first met her in her castle, like you said, just being lost and just not knowing what to do with herself. But then when she went to go rescue Din, they had those conversations. He's all the mythosaur. I really think that was like a big change moment for her. So, and just everything that we've seen her do helped. Paz's son helped uh, lead the charge against the rescue of Navarro. It just all felt very genuine. But once we got to the moment where the armorer calls her down to the forge and they have their conversation, and everything that the armorer was telling her there, I think is a load of bantha fodder. I think the armorer is really playing Bo Katan here. I think she's really the one behind all this. And I think it's going to be revealed where it's kind of she might be the main villain of this season because I felt it odd the way she kind of quickly welcomed Bo-Katan to the covert and how quickly after they were done fighting on Navarro, she calls it down, tells her to remove her helmet, kind of admits to her or tells her, yeah, like she believes her that she did see the mythosaur when before she was just kind of hinting that, oh, it was just a vision and just kind of really saying everything that Bo-Katan wants to hear and to kind of encourage her and to set her off to go, as you said, continue what her first mission was all about when we first saw her in season two to retake Mandalore and uh, to go find other Mandalorians. And I just think the armor is really filling Bo-Katan's head with, like, like I said, everything she wants to hear, um, get her, you know, hype built up to on this mission and just to make her really believe that, yes, she is the one who could reunite the Mandalorians and bring them all together. The way she's talking about how she walked both ways, one with the covert and one, you know, as we saw her before that, I just think she's just using that, as I said, just to kind of fill her head and make her believe that she is the rightful one to lead Mandalore. Because I think once it got revealed at the end that, um, Carson Tiva says that, oh, Mandalorians look like there was some Beskar material there. And it's being said that the Mandalorians took Moff Gideon. I, I, first off, I really hope it's not a plant by Moff Gideon to kind of frame the Mandalorians. That maybe could go in an interesting direction, but as of right now, I don't think it would be. I think it'd be a lot more interesting if actual Mandalorians were behind it, even if it's kind of what you were saying with Bo-Katan being, and her group being the ones to free Moff Gideon and do whatever they want to do. But I think it's going to be revealed that it's the armor and maybe you can, there might be some holes in my theory that might not make sense yet, but maybe the gaps can be filled later on because I just think the armor has more connections than she's letting on where she knows maybe the other factions of Mandalorian or is in contact or has informants um, within the new Republic somehow to where uh, she knew where Moff Gideon was going to be. And maybe whether it's a different Mandalorian group or some members of the covert who she trusts that were to go um, break him out. I think she has him somewhere just so like torturing him to submit, really make him suffer for what he did. And I think she's kind of sending Bo-Katan out on this mission to find other Mandalorians, Mandalorians 
is so she can kind of either take the fall for the new republic. She some she can maybe got word that the new republic, or she realizes the new republic will eventually find out that Mandalorians are the ones who uh, freed Moff Gideon. If she sends Bo-Katan kind of out in the galaxy, uh, the New Republic will probably catch up to her and kind of throw them throw their attention to her while she can still do whatever she wants uh, with Moff Gideon. And I think in her mind, she's killing two birds with one stone because, like I said, I think she's full of bantha fodder whenever she's uh, talking with Bo-Katan because I think she, I said this before where we're speculating how their first meeting was going to go and how it probably wouldn't go too well. And this is why I really think it's all of an act. I still believe Bo-Katan or the armorer holds Bo-Katan and Moff Gideon equally responsible for the destruction of Mandalore. Bo-Katan for obviously not winning the dart saber and leaving their people to ruin, allowing Moff Gideon to destroy Mandalore and leave it to ruin. So I think she holds them really responsible. I go back to that line she says in the book of Boba Fett telling about Bo-Katan was a cautionary tale about how one who could, who doesn't win the dark saber by combat will, by combat will lead Mandalore to destruction. And that's obviously what happened. And I think she really believes that and holds Bo-Katan responsible for that. So I think this is her way of kind of winning the trust of Bo-Katan, allowing her to be part of the covert, when maybe Bo-Katan really didn't think she would be welcome, kind of earning her trust so that she can tell her and use her past to lead her on to make her believe she's the one to unite Man- the Mandalorians and take back Mandalore. And that's another thing, too. They just got the free Navarro. Grief Karga gave them the land that was promised so that they can live freely there. And then so they have this new home and they can thrive. And then once they get that, the armorer says, oh, now it's time to go retake Mandalore. That's why I really don't buy that from her. I think she's saying that because she knows that's what Bo-Katan wants to do. And that's what her real goal is to. And that's what she's going to lead her on to go out in the galaxy. And and like I said, I think be the one that the New Republic can go after and pursue as the ones who um, freed Moff Gideon. Because they may know, too, that she was the one who was uh, really after her. uh, Or really after Moff Gideon. Where it would make sense for them to believe that she would be the prime suspect. Um, for the one to free Moff Gideon to really make him pay for his crimes. So I just think that all plays into the armorer's plan there for what she wants to do with Bo-Katan and uh, Moff Gideon, both to make them both pay. And another thing, too, that I'm thinking about, let's not forget her helmet design, too. I mean, we speculated on when it was first revealed, oh, she's the only one whose helmet has those horns. And there hasn't been any connection for her to being one of Maul's followers, but I think that could lead into her motivations too. Still kind of doing things maybe Maul would have as the leader of the Mandalorians during his brief time. Um, Having these connections uh, and kind of having his hands in uh, different parts of organizations and groups uh, within the galaxy to maybe she f- picked up a few tricks or the way he did things amongst when she, he was ruling and still his methods of doing things, maybe um, a little that need for revenge, so to speak, as she, I think she really has for Moff Gideon and Bo-Katan here. So I, that'd be a cool reveal. So think just to make that connection that she was one of Maul's Mandalorian followers there. And she still kind of, heating to his way of rule or his leadership there. So I think there's some more stuff to be revealed with the armorer coming up in these next few episodes. And I, I find that to be really interesting too, to have 
her end up being the main antagonist of this season. And that can kind of really be the way for the Mandalorians, or at least as covert, to kind of see things in a new light where their leader was and not not being who she said she was and not being trustful. And maybe in the end, uh, Din and Bo-Katan have to take her down. And when they expose her, that's kind of maybe the catalyst of Mandalorians uh, uniting. Maybe some of them won't see the way as they used to and adhere to the rules that they were um, following as far as not removing their helmet and these different customs. If their leader was amongst them, ended up lying to them and just kind of proving herself to be unworthy. So I just think a lot of interesting things can happen here too. And just another thing too, as far as Bo-Katan being anointed by the the armor as being the one who could, the only one who can reunite the Mandalorians. At the part of me thinking, it does make sense, but at the end of the day, this is still Din Djarin's show. He is the Mandalorian. And I still think that's going to be his ultimate pathway of him being the one to do that it is if that is the way the story is going to go where he will be the one to to do that or at least play a big part in it um maybe alongside with bo-katan but um yeah so that's where my head's going right now with all this i just think it's going to get revealed that the armor is really the one behind the abduction of moff gideon um she hasn't been truthful to her covert and she's been having the secrets and just wants to really exact her revenge against Bo-Katan and Moff Gideon. And this is probably the perfect way to, to do so um, in the scenario that she's cooking up right here. So, yeah, um, like I said, I, it did feel off when she was talking to Bo-Katan there. Like, this seemed to happen so quickly and it just didn't feel right where it's like the timing of it just seemed a little too soon, too convenient, where it just something about it felt off. So. If that ends up not being the case, I pr I'll probably look back at this moment, depending on where the story goes. But if what the armorer says here, if she really means it and all this happens the way she said it's going to be and the reasons for Bo-Katan and then ready to take back Mandalore, um, I don't know. It might not be my favorite aspect or direction the story to go, but I just they've set up too much as far as left little breadcrumbs here where there's definitely going to be more to it than what's been spoken here by the armorer here. And what um Bo-Katan is going to be going through in the next few episodes it's not going to be uh, probably a smooth sailing for her looking for the Mandalorians like I said I think she's going to cross path with those of the New Republic and uh, we'll see what happens but right now that's kind of my theory about this I think it's going to end up being revealed that the armorer will end up being the one behind this and the main or antagonist of season three See, and I know there's a lot of people out there that feel the same way and think that she's really, uh, you know, that she's sort of the main villain of the show. Um, and I definitely kind of got that vibe that, like, when she was laying out all that stuff for Bogotan, that, like, there's more to this. Like, what is she really getting at here? Or what is her main goal? And she certainly could have some of her own ulterior motives that may or may not be good. Um, but, man, I just feel like like with everything you're saying about, you know, her telling Bo-Katan everything she wants to hear. I'm like, but you could look at it from the flip side that Bo-Katan is telling all of them everything that they want to hear, you know, going along with the creed and yes, I'll be part of your, um, you know, I'll, I'll be part of your covert and I'll help out and I'll be a good leader and I'll be this perfect little Mandalorian and I'll keep my helmet on and everything all the while kind of gaining their trust that she could maybe eventually use against them. 
I just feel like everything you're talking about and and kind of with my theory too about the different reasons for why they may want to go after Moff Gideon, I just feel like Bo-Katan has more to gain from that because the armorer already is in a position of power. So it's not like she's trying to take over the clan or feel like, you know, she's the rightful leader of Mandalore or something like that. Um, yeah, I'm kind of, I think it's just all going to be uh, based on revenge purposes, like trying to but, get justice for the Mandalorians for what they went through and the destruction and loss of their planet. But again, if that was also the case, um, you know, it's like the, she could have exacted that revenge on Bogotan at any time um, rather than let her into the clan and string her along all this time. Um, it's not like she need like if she's doing all this just so that she can like torture or execute Moff Gideon and Bo-Katan together at the same time, that just kind of rings hollow to me as a, a motivation. Whereas again, Bogatan has so much more to gain because she wants the Darksaber, she wants to lead Mandalore, she wants justice for this stuff that's been done to her. And remember, too, I mean, obviously the armorer feels that loss of Mandalore, like that's the home of her ancestral people. But she and her covert were on um or you know their their sect, whatever, the children of the watch, they were on Concordia. So the you know the Empire coming and bombing Mandalore, that's they they took away Bo-Katan's home more so than they did the armorers. And when you're talking about that episode in the book of Boba Fett, where she talks about, you know, Bogatan was a cautionary tale. And uh, you know, to me, the way that she talks about her, it's not angry, it's not spiteful. It's almost like she's like, I I realized that Bogatan had Mandalore's best interest at heart. And she came from this noble house and everything. And, you know, she was a great Mandalorian, but she didn't follow the way and things didn't go well for her. Um, just like, you know, so and, and you know, she sees her as just kind of straying from the way and failing and being this cautionary tale, kind of just like Din taking off his helmet. And then, you know, when Din goes and is, is submerged in the living waters, you know, Bogatan is as well. And the armor is just as willing to offer her redemption and a second chance. Um because she knows that as much as Bogatan failed, like she was not an enemy of Mandalore. And I think, see, that's the other thing we've seen in the past through Clone Wars and Rebels, and we've seen Bogatan on different sides, and we've seen her at times be a hero and at times be a villain. But I think at the end of the day, she, like, I think her main character motivation is she's doing what she thinks is best for Mandalore. Um, but it's just after all this time, after her having gone through so much and sacrificed so much and, and seen and done so much, there's a chance that, you know, maybe she feels like what's best for Mandalore is to have me leading it because I have been through more than everybody else or I've, you know, just, you know, whatever. And again, she could just be on a power trip. She could be being manipulated by Gideon or Thrawn or, or somebody else. Um, and again, I don't even necessarily think that like she's been playing this completely from the beginning and, you know, been manipulating all these events to go exactly as she wanted. I think if anything, she's maybe more of just an opportunist. And, um, you know, once she saved in and then was accepted back into his clan, she was like, hey, maybe I can do something here. And I think part of her is genuine, too. Like, I, I think that she definitely... Again, it's not like she's sitting there twirling her mustache going, oh, I'm going to get these guys. I think part of her probably is grateful to have a home and to be accepted into the clan um, after losing her home to the Empire a second time and all that kind of stuff. Like, I think 
I think some of that is genuine and I don't think she's a straight up villain, but I think as she's going along and doing all this stuff, I think maybe there's part of her that's going, Oh, I can use this. I can use this. I could do this, that, the other thing. Um, and maybe she's kind of piecing things back together to try to be like, Hey, you know what? Maybe it's time for me to try to, to take my place as the leader of these people again. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, there are definitely, you know, sort of, breadcrumbs that you could follow in both directions um and it could be you know maybe all of our theories are off base there could be some completely new faction out there i also was thinking you know when we saw like gar saxon and um the uh imperial super commandos you know the mandalorians and rebels that were loyal to the empire could there still be more of them out there and are those the ones that freed moff gideon that's true too um yeah and we're about to be introduced to a whole new villainous Mandalorian faction. That could also be the case. Um, but I just think, you know, like I, I certainly get why there are reasons to be suspicious of the armor. And she probably is still, you know, doesn't have all her cards on the table and she might be up to something. But I just feel like there's a lot for Bo-Katan to gain here. And even like you were saying, you know, it's like, why would she be the chosen one? to bring all of Mandalore together when, you know, Din is the main character of this show, you would think it would be him. And it's like, well, again, that's why, you know, maybe they put all their faith in Bogotan and she betrays them and ends up being the villain of the season. And Din has to be the hero to take her down or something. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know who we can trust at this point, but if, if I had to put Just money on one of them Grogu, being, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We know Grogu's not stabbing anybody in the back. Um, but yeah, I just feel like after all this time, you know, after, after having built up this relationship between Din and Bogatan and having built this trust in her over the course of the season, I think if they do it well, that could be a great twist to have her end up really being the villain. And I think it would be more compelling to not just, again, not just have her having been, you know, playing out this whole master plan the whole time, but to, maybe even go back through flashbacks and show like, Oh, at what point in the story did she sort of start falling down the wrong path or start being tempted by this power or, you know, sort of like Anakin almost, you know, like being corrupted by that desire to, to lead Mandalore again. So um, I think you, you made me think of how in flashbacks or you mentioned all there could be some more flashbacks in future episodes where I think it was in one of the TV spots where there was, a quick shot of showing Mandalore where it wasn't destroyed, where it was flourishing. And um, it was, Oh, you're right. No, you know what? That wasn't, um, I don't think that was Mandalore. It might be Kalevala or it might be a different planet where some Mandalorians are because it looks like Mandalore with like the dome structures, exactly, but it's on, yeah. it's on a grassy planet. And even when we saw Mandalore in the Clone Wars and Rebels, you know, that city of Sundari under the big dome was always out in the middle of like a big flat plain. Yeah. Um, maybe it's going further back though <laughs> in Mandalore's history. Maybe. Yeah. See, I think if anything, maybe that's, maybe that's where we'll see Bogotan going to recruit some other Mandalorians um true i think that's probably more likely at this point dang it i had forgotten about that because i was gonna say i love that we're at the point in the season where we've seen everything from the trailers um yeah I was thinking but i guess too. we haven't quite seen everything yet because you're right we haven't seen that one that one scene yet of uh, i believe it's an aerial shot of her gauntlet fighter coming out over you know that planet that's got those big mandalorian dome structures out on you know some like grassy hilly terrain so 
Okay, so I couldn't um, remember the ship if they, if they even had a ship in that shot. I thought it was kind of an over overhead shot of the planet. But if you see that, it could be. I'd have to go back there. and watch it again. I I seem to remember it being her ship, but I could be confusing that with a different shot where we okay. saw the gauntlet. So, um. Yeah, I, I mean, I felt like coming into this episode, kind of the last big things from the trailers that we hadn't seen yet was the big battle with the pirates and then uh, Carson's warning saying, you know, that there's something else, there's something big out there. And obviously that was in this episode as well. And so I was, you know, coming out of this, I was saying, all right, we're in uncharted territory. We don't know what's yep. happening next. <laughs> Aside from like that one shot, like you mentioned. So um, yeah, I'm I'm really excited to see what happens next. Uh, you know, especially... Now that we have all these pieces on the table, um, I think you know we're gonna get just some some really good story and some really good reveals and twists and stuff over the next few episodes. Also, Bryce Dallas Howard is directing next week's, and you know how much I love her episodes and how great a job she's done uh, with her last couple episodes of Mando and Book of Boba Fett. So that one should be a great one. And then Rick Famuyiwa is directing the last two episodes of the season. So. Um, yeah, between the directors that we've got, you know, on deck and, uh, you know, just the way that the story is going and the stuff that they have to resolve after this, I just can't wait to see what's going to happen in these last three episodes. Yeah, it's reminding me a little bit right now with our speculation, even with season two, where uh, we're wondering who's going to be the Jedi to come here, or heard Grogu's call on Typhon, and we're speculating, oh, it could be Yoda. Ahsoka, oh, you know, well, we already saw Ahsoka, but um, obviously the big one being Luke. Wait, how would which, it be Yoda? Remember, I did a speculation as far as Yoda being the one to answer, not necessarily take Grogu, but through the Force. He oh. like, was the one to communicate through the Force, through the Force Spirit. Yeah, but, I forgot about that. But yeah, by that this point, when, once we were speculating after Episode Five, I was like, "Guys, it's Luke. Like, what are we yeah. even doing here? It's gonna be Luke." But now we're wondering who's going to be the one to betray the Mandalorians, the armor or Bo-Katan. Well, yeah. we'll find out in the next or three episodes. somebody else. Oh, because the other thing I wanted to bring up too, when you talked about how the armor could have planned, like that that could have somehow been a plant just to get the New Republic to go after Bo-Katan. I'm like, I don't necessarily see that happening either because especially with Carson Tava being the one to find it, I don't think he's immediately going to go back to New Republic HQ and going, you know, mobilize a strike force. We got to hunt down the Mandalorians. If anything, he's going to go back to find Mando again and be like, hey, do you know anything about this? You know, what's up? Like, you know, and, and be looking for answers. I don't think it's going to be immediately, you know, mobilize the army and go after Bo-Katan because she's a Mandalorian and a Mandalorian freed Moff Gideon. Um, I think that would be a bit of a jump, so... I don't necessarily think it was like a plant. I don't think, let's say if my theory of the armor was behind it, I don't think they meant to leave a piece of Beskar um, alloy or material there. Um, but once um, maybe they found out like piece of the armor of the troopers missing and he's like reveals to her, I got hit or I lost a piece of it on the ship. And she realizes, oh, this could, you know, be some evidence that leads the new Republic back to us. And this is kind of what sets her plan in motion to have Bo-Katan uh, go out there and be the one to take the fall for it and be the one that the new republic chases if they do um decide to uh mount up and try to find some mandalorians or a mandalorian responsible for this so i don't think it was intentionally left there i just think once it was found out that that's the situation they're in then she has to think about uh another way to make sure it doesn't go back to her once if the new republic gets involved yeah it could be but also i think I just think it's way more likely that, especially because we don't know when this attack took place. 
yeah um or how long this ship has been drifting out here and rather than you know finding out that oh at some point in the season the armor sent out you know a strike team of of guys from her covert i mean heck they don't even have ships um at least from what we've seen aside from you know mando's n1 and bogatan's you know gauntlet fighter like they didn't have any other ships to get them to navarro like I said, um, I think she might have ties or connections to other Mandalorian factions out there. I just think there's more to her than she's leading on here as far as this that, Yeah, that could be too. That could be too. But again, you know, the only direct tie we have mentioned in the show to other Mandalorian groups out there is the ones that at some point were working for Bogatan. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm My money's on her if anybody's suspicious, but we'll see what happens. Um, yeah, very excited to see what happens next week. And again, you know, the, the sort of lingering thread with Vane and the pirates. And are we going to find out what that's connected to, if anything? Um, yeah, it's these, these last three weeks are going to be crazy. And I also, I can't help but wonder, like, are we just going to see Moff? Like, obviously we're going to see Moff Gideon again at some point. I wouldn't even be surprised if we saw him maybe next episode. Yeah. I thought we were um, going to see him in this one, <laughs> based on the recap. I thought we might too. Yeah. Well, yeah. I thought we were going to see Vane go back and talk to Moff Gideon, but like, could we see Thrawn by the end of the season and mm. maybe have that as a, a tease kind of tie into the Ahsoka series? Right. Ooh, I like that. Um, <laughs> it's it, it's just weird because like, it all depends, I guess, on if Thrawn is still out in the unknown regions with Ezra or if he's come back already and he's the one pulling the strings and all this. I mean, certainly Ahsoka seems to think that he's active in some stuff because she's asking, you know, why would the magistrate know where he is in season two if he was still out in the void with Ezra somewhere? So, um, yeah, I don't. And I mean, the other thing, too, is, you know, Ezra, um, when the, you know, the Pergil grab the ship with him and Thrawn and jump off into Lightspeed at the end of Rebels, it's like we just sort of assume they're off in the unknown regions or something, but they could have just jumped to a different part of the galaxy, like. For all we know, they maybe didn't actually go that far. They just went to some unknown location where nobody really knows where they are or what they've been up to. Um, but it's possible that we could see him and find out, you know, maybe we'll, by the end of the season, we'll kind of figure out, like, what really is the extent of this Imperial threat. Or maybe they'll wait till, wait till Ahsoka to reveal that. But, um, yeah, I can't, I can't wait to find out. Like I said, we've got you know, three weeks of, uh, I think some really cool surprises in store for the rest of the season. So it's going to be fun. Yeah. It bums me out that we're only, we only have three episodes left of the Mandalorian. It's going by so quick, but at the same time, I cannot wait to see what happens in these next three episodes. So yeah, that's, I'm both uh, wishing that it takes as long as possible, but at the same time, I want it to get here as quick as possible so I can find out what happens, but definitely going to enjoy these next three weeks. Um, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. Well, before we wrap up, um, I know you uh, put the question out on social media asking our listeners what they thought of the episode as well. So uh, did we get any good answers from that? Um, yeah, I got some more thoughts and speculation about what's going to go down um, in these next few episodes with how uh, this chapter ended. So first up, we got from Rule Thornbar. He goes, wow, what a ride this part of the story was. Now Bo-Katan is on her way to start what she's been telling us. And he sent the gif of her line saying, Mandalorians are stronger together. And then Jessica says, it's now the story of Bo-Katan. Hashtag, this is the way. And then a Burke's buzz says, um, regards to the best guards, it has to be a plant. Unless Thrawn or Gideon has a militia of Mandos, 
fascinating twist of events. Paz has Paz has won me over now. And then Caleb with probably the best uh, response on here <laughs> says, in honor of the turn of baseball this week, the Mandalorian has been to Star Wars what the steroid era was to baseball, completely rejuvenating the sport and bringing in new fans. Also pretty sure Paz Vizsla is being played by Mark McGuire. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like the baseball anal analogy there. I mean, as obviously controversial the steroid era was, at least in my view, <laughs> but can't deny the fact that it did rejuvenate uh, the sport of baseball during the 90s. And yeah, the Mandalorian, like we said, when it's um, going as good as it is right now, there's nothing better than it uh, when it comes to this type of Star Wars selling, which is awesome to experience. But yeah, it's um, great to see these different responses. Looks like a lot of the responses on here from our followers are just kind of going to be on the side of Bo-Katan thinking that, yeah, she really is going to be the one to re reunite the Mandalorians and take on that leadership role. So, I mean, it's just fun to have all these different takes and speculation. That's what's great <laughs> when we get uh, this type of reveals and story details happen in this episode where we can just speculate on these different possibilities, which is just so much, so much fun to talk about amongst ourselves on the show, but then also with all of our listeners, with you guys chiming in with your thoughts as well. So um, thanks for that. And it's going to be fun to enjoy the ride together on these next three episodes to see who is going to be right in the end, or if all of us were wrong, it's just something completely new and different that blows us away. So regardless of what we get, it's going to be a fun ride. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, thank you guys for uh, chiming in with your thoughts. I can't wait, like you said, just to see you know everybody's different theories and who's right and wrong at the end of the season. Um, I think maybe at some point, like before the next episode of Mando comes out, I'll have to like make a poll on our Twitter page and be like, who do you think was behind uh, Moff Gideon's escape? Like, was it Bogotan? Was it the armor? Was it a different faction of Mandalorians? Or was it um, the Empire framing them? Um, and we'll see where everybody lands on it. Cause I'm interested to see kind of which ways all the theories are split. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun to see, uh, either way. And I know, I know it's only three episodes left and it seems like kind of a short span for the rest of the season, but it's like considering how meaty this episode felt, um, you know, I've had, like, I've watched it like three times already just to kind of digest everything that happened and see, you know, we've got so many different kind of plot lines and characters and all that kind of stuff. So um, if they keep up, you know, that level of storytelling and action and excitement and everything over these next three episodes, I think it's going to be a uh, very satisfying three episodes and we're not going to left feeling like it was too short or too quick or anything. So I'm looking forward to it. Also can't believe that celebration is already next week. Um, and of course we've still got, you know, bad batch to talk about and everything. So just no shortage of good star Wars stuff right now. Um, what's it always that we always say it's, it's a great time to be a star Wars fan. It's almost <laughs> too good a time to be a star Wars fan right now. If you're a podcaster trying to keep up with all of it, but, uh, we appreciate you guys listening and again, you know, uh, engaging with us and sharing your thoughts and all that kind of stuff. We always appreciate it. So. Uh, you can follow us online on Twitter at Star Wars TSC, uh, on Facebook at the Star uh, Star Wars The Saga Continues. Uh, you can send us email at Star Wars TSC at gmail.com, and you can check out our website at Star Wars TSC.com. Um, but uh, yeah, that's going to do it for this episode. We will be back next week with another episode of Mando to talk about, hopefully, also with Paul back. Uh, but until then, thank you guys for listening. We will see you next time and may the force be with you. See you next time, everybody. Bye.